This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. Tonight is the last in a series we've been doing on the subject of homophobia. My guest is Betsy Parsons, and we're going to be speaking about homophobia in schools and how it affects our kids. Betsy comes from a long line of public school teachers here in Maine. She herself has taught in the Portland Public School System for 30 years, and she's now the co-chair of the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, known as GLSEN, which is a nonprofit whose mission is Safe Schools for All. Welcome to Safe Space, Betsy. Thank you. It's great to be here. What I know is that you taught for 20 years, Mm -hmm. both in the Portland Public Schools and, and, and Deering, and pretty much in the closet. So you knew your own sexual identity, but you weren't sharing it in any professional capacity. Actually, for about the first decade or so, I wasn't out to myself. So I really had the experience as a young teacher of teaching in complete freedom. I really know what that feels like. Uh And then I fell in love with someone I did not expect to fall in love with and discovered, duh, I'd been looking in the wrong half of the human population. And... This was the relationship that felt like the way I expected it to feel when I was with the person I wanted to be with for my life. However, it created a huge problem uh, because there were no protections at the time. There were no protections against discrimination, so my job was at risk and many other important aspects of my security were at risk. So I did what many teachers, what almost all lesbian and gay teachers are, are doing still in Maine, Uh, which was to go deep into the closet. I was there for 12 years, and it was at that point that I made the decision to do school differently. So before we even get into that, I mean, I can imagine that being a teacher and being out is almost more vulnerable than so many other professions because parents Mm -hmm. have this belief that somehow you would be leading their kids astray or that you would Mm -hmm. have the power to teach their kids to be gay. People have that (laughs) fantasy. And so they get really worked up about the idea of a teacher being a lesbian. Right. Actually, uh, my favorite writer about teaching, Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker teacher and thinker, describes teaching as happening at the intersection of the personal and the professional. And he talks about the great vulnerability of all teachers because of the way in which our personal selves inform the professional work and the way that there's really no escaping that. Um, It's both a blessing and a curse sometimes. And so for a teacher to teach from the whole self in the fullness of his or her being obviously is the most growthful for students. But in the case of gay or lesbian teachers, you've got to deal with the fear that, that you just described, this distorted notion that somehow this could be harmful to young people. Or that somehow it would actually change the young person's sexual orientation, that that just being exposed (laughs) to a role model Mm -hmm. would be enough, that sexual orientation is enough of a shallow thing or that malleable Mm -hmm. that you could actually switch it. Right. Which people don't understand about this. Well, it's just not a medical fact, as I know you know. And so I wonder if you could tell us the process. So there Mm -hmm. you are. You say you were closeted as a teacher for 12 years. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you start thinking, am I going to come out? Am I going to mm-hmm. 
share who I really am because mm-hmm. I have this value about teaching, which is that you bring your vulnerability, your realness to this work. Mm-hmm. And tell me the story about, you know, what were the events that led up to that, that really courageous decision on your part? Well, I would say that probably the most important precipitating um, factor was the way my own vision changed as I became, as I developed a a clearer identity as a lesbian, it became more and more apparent to me that I had been missing some important dimensions of student experience in schools. For instance, that, oh, I I just began to sort of put it together about kids who were extremely stressed for reasons that I couldn't understand, or students who were, who would suddenly disappear and never return. And, you know, there are many reasons why students disappear from a classroom. But I began to see patterns, including, in retrospect, understanding a couple of suicides of kids I had loved. And mm-hmm. as, as time went on, my deepening, sort of, you know, the texture of this understanding changed. And I became more aware of a kind of a dark underbelly in school culture, I do think, actually, there were some historical changes also, but my awareness became more acute at the same time that I think anti-gay harassment was kind of reaching new and deeper levels in in schools. I have a hunch that has something to do with with HIV in the 80s, and so that by by the mid to late 80s, I was beginning to hear anti-gay language that I had never heard before in schools. It was being used with um, a freedom and a just a sort of complete permission, you know. That you was, mean like to call somebody a fag kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Or, to, or the expression, that's so gay. I heard for the first time in, in the halls of Portland High School in 1987. And then I began to hear it in my classroom. And because I'm teacher of language, I'm an English teacher, you know, I'm always asking about the meaning of words. And so um, we would have to take some time to examine that expression and, you know, what what did people really intend by it? Uh, And I found that there was just a tremendous lack of thoughtfulness about the language that was being very, very freely used in, in all areas of the school, including actual, you know, class life. I mean, academic discussions. And so what I hear you um, saying is it was actually, it seemed to be getting worse. I Yes. I mean, I, I began to notice this in a it, to a level that I had never perceived it before. I do think that I was more sensitive to it, but I also believe it was actually changing. Yeah. If, if that makes any sense. I think there were historical factors that, that were affecting that. Yeah. And when you say historical factors, you mentioned HIV. Were there other ones that you're thinking of? I think another is that uh, the LGBT civil rights movement had made significant gains by that time, and there's always a backlash. I think it's sort of a long and complicated historical question, but... Yeah, um, but the whole social context was shifting all all the while that you inside are becoming more and more aware and starting to hear it all around you more. Right. And, of course, Charlie Howard had been murdered in 1984 by three Bangor High School students. You know, and Um, I'm unlike you. I'm not mm -hmm. from Maine, and Mm -hmm. I don't know that story. I wondered if you could just tell that story. Oh, it's a a grim story. In in the early 80s, uh, it was a widely considered sport um, in many parts of Maine 
to, you know, when you're bored and don't have anything to do, and if you're a young person, um, you go out fag baiting or fag bashing. It was uh, an activity. And so there was a fair amount of this going on in Bangor. Bangor was not unique in this regard, but in the in the way that so many... It's a typical story for escalation of minor harassment into a severe hate crime. That's part of why Charlie Howard's story is important, because there were there was this group of young men who were doing this activity for entertainment. You know, they were high school students. High school students, and they would go out together in a car, you know, and um, try to find people who might be gay to harass. Verbally, uh, verbally at first. Mm-hmm. And often it would escalate. Um, part of the reason it's so important to intervene with any kind of hate language is that if it's not stopped, it very commonly escalates into physical violence. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really very unsafe to allow this language to happen in any environment without intervention. And it's certainly the case in schools. So um, so in this particular case, these young men were out, you know, in a sort of a sport. And they found Charlie walking home from a potluck supper at the UU church and accosted him on the bridge. And, you know, first there was all of the ugly language, and then eventually they got out of the car. And uh, my understanding of the story is that Charlie pleaded for his life. Uh, They were saying they were going to throw him off the bridge, and uh, he told them he couldn't swim. And their their response was to pick him up and swing him back and forth out over the bridge and then eventually to let go. So uh, he was thrown into Kanduskig stream uh, where he drowned. So that's such an upsetting story. Yeah, and um, it, it's a dreadful story. And we're coming up next week on the um, 25th anniversary of that event. which is a significant event in the LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community in Maine. It was uh, was an important prod for the formation of of MLGPA, the Maine Lesbian and Gay Political Alliance, which is now Equality Maine. And it it really brought about some organizing of gay people in Maine. Um, Right, this cannot keep going. Right, right. But it took something that horrific. Right. You know. So at that point, when that happened, you you were still closeted as a teacher. Actually, I was just uh, coming out to myself at that time. Okay, so that was early in the process for right. you. Right. But I can imagine the simultaneous push-pull of something like that. Yeah. On the one hand, the impetus to stand against that, and to, but, you know, the impetus to come out, but also the impetus to stay in, because how literally dangerous... It was. Oh, bless you. I can promise you I had no thought whatsoever of coming out at that time. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, maybe, you know, one would feel like it was the right thing to do, but mostly one would feel terrified. I was in such a new stage of discovery about myself that coming out to other people was the last thing I was thinking about. Um, I was horrified about what happened to Charlie. It it terrorized me. That's one of the functions of hate crime. It's not a crime against just one person. It's a crime against an entire community. And it does succeed in silencing and terrorizing an entire community of people. So um, I was certainly one of those. And uh, it's it would never have occurred to me to come out at that time. What a, what a painful moment to be discovering your own 
sexuality. Yeah, it was very frightening. Internally, even. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was very frightening. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Betsy Parsons about uh, the the safety of adol- gay and lesbian adolescents in our school system. Mm. So you are there. You're a teacher. You you're ex- you have this experience in the background of this murder that happened, this hate crime. Mm-hmm. But then you go on, you start, it sounds like you start putting together the pieces. There are these kids that seem very stressed out, kids mm-hmm. who suddenly don't show up anymore. And it sounds like you start putting together, like, maybe these kids are gay and lesbian and they're being harassed. Right. And maybe some of them are actually being driven out of our school. Uh, and was there anybody that you really knew come, came to find out that that was the case? I mean, is there... Yes. Is there? Can you tell the story of that person keeping their name anonymous? Well, there's actually quite a long list. Maybe uh, there's a, one or two stories that come to mind. Sure. I, w- I think what I'd like to do is just speak a little bit, kind of go forward about a decade, okay. if we could, or yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. And uh, by this time, I'm teaching at Deering, and I, I have a, a student who, whom I've often spoken about in public. I call him Steve. It's, it's not his real name. But um, Steve arrived in my junior English class having been outed, that is, someone had disclosed information about his sexual orientation without his consent, uh, partway through his freshman year. So he had immediately become a target for harassment, a really severe, relentless harassment, both verbal and physical. And um, he had actually endured a year and a half of that before he came into my life. So he arrived, you know, to try to learn some English in junior year. And frankly, at that point, Steve had been so traumatized by the the daily harassment in school and the, the, um, the viciousness and the relentlessness of it that he really was suffering symptoms of what we would recognize now as PTSD. Uh, he had trouble concentrating. He couldn't read or remember what he read. Uh, he was depressed. He was suicidal. And eventually, you know, I, Steve, you know, I, my aim is to help every young person in my hands learn the things they need to learn for their future and, to, and you know, get their English credit. Right. Um, and, I, and I didn't succeed with Steve. He was driven out of my class and out of the school uh, while he was my student. So even though I did everything I could think of and put in incredible extra time and um, and I must say, the guidance staff and his parents, I mean, he had a lot of support from those, from the key people, you know, the teachers and the key other adults. staff, right, the key adults. But the um, the damage that had been done was really too severe, and he, he just had to really be out of that environment. So uh, the one thing that I didn't do with Steve is to come out at school. And at about that same time that I was... I feel I was losing Steve out of my teacher's hands. At about that same time, a student came back to see me uh, who had been a ninth grader in my um, in an honors class at Portland High years before. She had now graduated from college and had come back to see an old teacher. And, you know, it's one of the joys of the profession, right? right. You know, you get to see them grown up and, and um, see what they've made of themselves and where they're going with their lives. So she came back to visit and uh, talked to me about the wonderful relationship she was in with a woman partner. And I was so happy for her. And I felt free at that point, since we were both grown-ups, you know, I felt free to disclose this part of my life to her and the happiness I had in my relationship. At that point, she really stunned me by 
sharing what the reality of ninth grade had been like for her. And when she was in my class, I frankly worried about her less than anybody else in the class. Her life looked perfect to me. Uh, I had no idea of the loneliness that she was experiencing, the alienation, the fear. Uh, she knew she was lesbian. She felt she could tell no one. And she really was feeling quite hopeless about her future. She was an extraordinarily gifted student who could see no way that she was going to be able to have her life. And um, she, she couldn't see how she could do work commensurate with her skills and gifts and she didn't know how she was going to hang on to her family or build a family of her own or any of those things. So I was just really shocked to hear how desperate that year had been and how close she had come to not being here. And at one point I asked her, I, I was in tears, and I asked her, what could I have done? What could I have done as your ninth grade teacher that would have made that year and maybe high school in general more bearable for you? And um, she was kind enough to make a nice list of things that I had done. And I actually didn't <laughs> remember doing them, but they sounded like me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I did actually do some of those things. Right. But then she looked me right in the eye and said, but Betsy, you know what you could have done that really would have made the difference for me? She said, you know, you were a wonderful teacher. I respected you. My parents respected you. She said, if I could have known that you and I were alike in this way, I would have had so much more hope for my life. She said, you could have been out. You could have been out. And really, the convergence of those two experiences with the suicide of another student brought me to the place of no return. Another student who was gay? Yes, another gay student. Oh. And those three experiences really happened to me, you know, within a, within a few months. And it, it just meant that the pressures added up to the point where um, I, I either had to leave teaching, which... Which wasn't going to help these kids much? <laughs> uh, well, or wasn't going to help me either. Right, I, it's right. in my bones. It's been my calling. And mm -hmm. uh, it's something I feel very passionate about. I, I believe that public school teachers make a just a, a really essential contribution to to our life, our communal life in a democratic society. And while the public schools are par, far from perfect, I think that uh, it's really essential, the essential work of democracy, to try our best to create a level playing field and to give kids full opportunity for the education that they need, you know, to reach the fullness of, of their gifts. Um, so I really didn't want to contemplate leaving teaching, but I wasn't sure I was ready to come out either, and yet I felt that it was I was at a crossroads. Um, the relationship that I was in was deeply closeted, and I knew that although the pressures had been mounting, many gay and lesbian relationships experience um, a lot of tension around issues of how out to be. Yeah. Um, That's just really common it's one of the stressors of homophobia. It's one of the ways that our relationships are um, taxed. And we were in increasingly different places on these questions. Um, I kept hoping that, you know, that we might go for counseling or be able to work out a way that we could move in a little bit more parallel way on, on living more openly, at least maybe with, at first with a few, uh, a small circle of 
friends or beloved people in our lives. And, and my partner just was not ready to go there and was not ever going to do that. And I, it was just very painful, but I had to ultimately accept that. And so my choice was to stay in the relationship with this person that I deeply loved or, and, and to keep a closed life or choose an open life and be a teacher. And so I chose the latter. It was, it was, uh, I grieved that relationship very hard for about three years. What a painful choice. Yeah. I can imagine for her, you know, the story you told just a moment ago about the student saying to you, Betsy, you could have been out. That would have made the difference. I'm guessing she didn't have someone saying that to her. No, and the world that she grew up in and um, the world that shaped her offered no options ever for claiming this relationship. I can understand why it was that hard for her. But I also see that ultimately I couldn't, I, I couldn't do the rest of my life that way. It sounds like the price of it, both for you and for the people you wanted to impact, was it just became clear that that was too high. So I want to shift now to talking about what you, what you are doing. So here you are. You made this courageous decision at great personal cost to come out as a teacher, and you're now involved in a network that's supporting kids and forming groups like the Gay Straight Alliances in schools all over Maine. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your work. You know, what made that price worth paying in terms of what it's allowed you to do now? I'd love to. Um, first, I want to say that that the decision, while it was very charged for me in 96, 97, 98, there are more teachers making that decision now, and the prices are not as high as they were. So just not to be too discouraging to people. One of the first things that happened when I came out to students and families at school is that students approached me immediately asking me to help them start a gay-straight alliance, which is a student club that deals directly with the problem of anti-gay bias and harassment in the school. So it's a, it's a club devoted to improving the school climate and to helping everybody feel safer so that they can focus on what they're really there for, which is to learn, you know? And so we did that. It was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. I saw so much courage so many loving and affirming and, and brave actions of young people. They really were straight and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender together, and questioning also. And I don't know, it, to me, it was a way to answer the oppression and stigma in a way that not only dignified ourselves and strengthened us, Certainly, I benefited as much as the students did, um, but also helped to knit the community together to make it a better place to be. So for me, it was really quite inspirational work from the beginning. And now uh, these GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances, it's a youth-driven movement, and youth have driven it into a third of Maine high schools at this point. There are 53 GSAs that we've been able to document uh, that are active in Maine right now. And young people are doing some really beautiful work in their schools. What would be an um, example of something like that? I mean, beyond the obvious, which is like helping people come together and have a place mm -hmm. to offer support, right. what are some of the other things they're doing? Well, just creating that safe space is a, a really essential function of a GSA. Huge. 
you know, for some students, that's the only place where they can fully breathe. That's the only place where they can just relax in school. But GSAs, most GSAs do more than that. They, they often lead educational campaigns in their school. GLSEN sponsors a number of National Student Days of Action, and they encourage GSAs to participate in these or to create homegrown campaigns that will have the effect of making people a little bit more aware of how hurtful anti-gay language is to everyone, not just to gay people. And, you know, it just helps folks be more mindful of their, their words and their actions and how they may be affecting someone else's chance to learn. So, for instance, Ally Week is the first national day of action in the fall. And, um, you know, in October, all over the country in thousands of GSAs, young people are asking other youth in schools to sign a pledge to be an ally. That is to not use anti-gay language and to speak up if you hear it. If someone wants to find out more about GLSEN, how they can support it, how they can help support starting a new GSA in their school, do you have a website or a contact number? Yes, absolutely. org, And the phone number for GLSEN Southern Maine is 775-0173. That's 775-0173. Betsy Parsons, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you for having me, Dr. Ann. My thanks also to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music and Dave End for the music. Hi, if you have a request or a suggestion for a future topic, please email me at drnwmpg at gmail.com. That's drnwmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks. Next week, I'll be starting a new series on maternal ambivalence and other motherly taboos.